This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Fugitive Pieces, the Canadian novelist Anne Michaels writes, Nothing erases the immoral act, not forgiveness, not confession. And even if the act could be forgiven, no one could bear the responsibility of forgiveness on behalf of the dead. No act of violence is ever resolved. When the one who can forgive can no longer speak, there is only silence. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. How do we make sense of history and is it possible for individuals and for communities to move on from the traumatic events of the past? On this week's show, award-winning Canadian poet and novelist Anne Michaels explores the impact of history, the nature of remembrance, consolation and the gradual instant. And what is the future for Irish publishing? Today we're celebrating 30 years of the iconic Dublin publishing house, the Lilliput Press with its rather rock-and-roll publisher, the great Anthony Farrell. I feel passionately that books are a sort of permanent window in the world, and I think the digital medium is, is inherently unstable, and people save things, they go to the iCloud, but the book is the vehicle of transmission for culture. We began in a hot metal era, and we're now in the iCloud, but I think the book is, is the bridge to our self-understanding. A book is the important reflective surface for the mind. This is a show about truth and remembrance, courage and creativity, trauma and connection. But first, holding the reader close with Canadian poet and novelist Anne Michaels. Anne Michaels is a writer of tremendous depth, style, integrity and grace. Born in Toronto, Ontario in 1958, Anne is an adjunct professor in the Department of English at the University of Toronto. Anne first came to prominence as a writer of poetry, focusing mainly on the historical record, and later moved into fiction, where she cemented her unique narrative design. Anne says she admires a kind of essential gut humanism, and is conscious of writing in a way that allows the reader a place in the book. She says, I want the reader to come into the book. Anne is best known for her two novels, Fugitive Pieces and The Winter Vault, which investigate themes of pain, love grief, separation and connection. Anne's first novel, Fugitive Pieces, was published in 1996 to robust international critical acclaim. It won the Orange Prize for Fiction, the Guardian Fiction Prize and the First Novel Award in Canada, introducing Anne to a global readership. Fugitive Pieces is divided into two autobiographical narratives, Book 1 and Book 2. Book 1 tells the haunting and dramatic story of Jacob Beer, who as a Jewish child in Poland during World War II narrowly escapes being killed by the Nazis. Luckily, Jacob is rescued by a compassionate Greek geologist who takes him to Canada where he slowly learns to psychologically and emotionally grapple with his painful memories of the Holocaust. Book one follows Jacob's extraordinary life, his marriage, career successes as a poet and his obsession with his traumatic memories of the Holocaust. Book two, the second story, is written from the perspective of an admirer of Jacob's poetry, Ben, a Canadian academic of Jewish descent who was born in Canada to survivors of the Holocaust. 
Ben becomes obsessed with Jacob's story. It's a beautiful read, intense, delicate, poetical and hugely lyrical. It took Anne over 10 years to write. In Fugitive Pieces, Anne writes, It's a mistake to think it's the small things we control and not the large. It's the other way around. We can't stop the small accident, the tiny detail that conspires into fate, the extra moment you run back from something forgotten, a moment that saves you from an accident or causes one. But we can assert the largest order, the large human values daily. Anne's second book, The Winter Vault, was published in 2009, taking Anne over seven years to research and write. The Winter Vault takes the reader on a remarkable journey through Egypt, Poland and Canada, connecting a series of dramatic and painful events in history. It's another thought-provoking read, beautifully unpacking the nature of grief, memory, loss and regeneration. Incidentally, The Winter Vault was shortlisted for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award, the Trillium Book Award and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. It's also very, very clever. Anne's books of poetry include The Weight of Oranges, which won the Commonwealth Prize, Miner's Pond, which won the Governor-General's Award and the Canadian Authors' Association Award for poetry. She's also published Skin Divers, and the recent Correspondences, which was shortlisted for the 2014 Griffin Poetry Prize. Anne writes, Any given moment, no matter how casual, how ordinary, is poised, full of gaping life. Well, over the summer, I got the chance to spend some time with Anne at the West Cork Literary Festival, and we sat in the grounds of Bantry House discussing her books. I asked Anne about her unique narrative style and the importance of finding connection. In The Winter Vault, that's a a very predominant question that that book asks, and there's a line that is repeated in various ways in the book. Um, Regret, shame, loss, these are not the end of the story, they are the middle of the story. And so I think that that is is a very crucial idea that these events are are the middle of the story. Everyone finds their way differently. And when I begin, when I begin a book, I, I have no idea whether that character will, in fact, emerge and reach the other side. And this not knowing is extremely important because I don't write with an agenda. I write in a very undefended way. And I'm very determined that whatever consolation, whatever hope there is at the end of the book, and every book must reach that place or I won't publish it, it must not be false consolation. It has to be emerge truly and honestly. Otherwise, it's of no use. No use to me, no use to the reader, no use to the character. And your books are very intimate reads. Can you tell me how you how you live and grow as you're devising your characters and how you're shaping your characters? Because Fugitive Pieces took nearly 10 years to write and I know that you spent about seven years researching Winter Vault. So that's a tremendous amount of time to sit, to grow and to learn with a character. It's an incredible privilege to be able to spend time with with another human being, to be able to spend time with a character, to be allowed the time to understand to understand another human being, whether fictional or not fictional, it's a privilege. And the characters, uh, in a sense, keep me company through very difficult questions. Mm. So I think 
in a way, they give me courage to go to places that are otherwise extremely difficult. And and I hope that for a reader, the character also will, will do the same thing for, for a reader. And you said something very interesting in the workshop today in Bantry House. You said that you like to bring the reader as close to the brink right to the point before they're actually going to walk away almost from the book so it's about that tension I think that um, precisely those questions where or those events that are so disturbing or so difficult to understand that that we naturally it's human nature to turn away and when the event is a, an historical event, we, we must understand as, as deeply as we can. And so there's a moment which is completely tied to morality in which I, I, I try and bring the reader, which is a moment where we, we think and feel, not one without the other. And to be able to think and to feel at the same time is... is, is a moment is, is an instant, and that is the moral instant, the instant of understanding a sense of morality. You have to feel it in your body. You can hope that you'll do the right thing. You can hope that you'll act the way you wish you would act, wish wish to act. But in fact, if you don't feel it in your body, you don't really have a sense of what it means. Mm. Because when you think of all these situations in history where, where people were forced to make instantaneous mm. decisions uh, one way or another, whether to be complicit or not to be complicit, they're extraordinary moments. And as, as I say in Fugitive Pieces, it's absolutely incredible that after the war, when people were asked, you know, how, you know, you you took this person in, you risked your life for this, for a stranger. How, how, how did you do that? How could you do that? And the person says, I had no choice. I had to. And that is that instantaneous moment of moral knowledge which you mm-hmm. feel in your body. In, in, in Fugitive Pieces as well, when, when, when Athos, the, the Greek geologist, when he plucks Jacob out of the mud, it's an instantaneous mm-hmm. decision, which of course mm-hmm. changed both of their lives. So what I guess I'm trying to get at is, is that the way we act, towards others, the way we live every day, this is exercising Mm. that moral muscle, and we must exercise it. Mm. Otherwise, you know, we we lose the capacity. And you've written a lot about big historical themes, and I'm wondering, do you think we are receptive to history, and do you think books allow us to be receptive to our history, and to learn from our history, or to learn from our shared traumas, our shared griefs? We're all absolutely affected by history, whether we have any sense of it or not. The world we inhabit is formed by huge forces around mm. us mm. That, that we are also responsible for. Mm. That the whole notion of the gradual instant in fugitive pieces is, is about that. How complicit and, and incomplicit that we are, we determine things. And so our stories, you know, everyone knows how important our stories are, whether they're family stories, whether they're cultural stories. But how we receive those stories, what we learn from them, that that's up to us. You must have a lot of trust in the reader. I have a tremendous respect for the reader. I have a tremendous respect for my characters and I have a tremendous respect for my subject matter. You know, taking the time, taking a tr- tremendous amount of time writing a book, trying not to waste a word that is also out of respect for the reader and the subject matter, the characters. You know, you talked about shared trauma uh, in terms of history. There's also the shared joy and the tr- tremendous sense of, of power that history can give us when you understand that as the action of a single person at a single moment making one small choice 
for goodness has tremendous consequence. And now when you think of things that have been accomplished in, in what seems like a split second, the taking down of the Berlin Wall, I mean, who could ever have imagined, certainly growing up, <laughs> it was beyond one's comprehension that such a thing could occur. And yet, you know, it seemed literally overnight that this insurmountable barrier had been taken down, which is, in fact, you know, that is the gradual instant. It took a tremendous number of years and the tremendous will of many, many people, ordinary people, for that to happen. So history, in fact, is, is yes, about shared griefs, shared trauma, and, and uh, coming to terms with moments of, I, I define it as, you know, there's nothing that a man will not do to another, and nothing that a man will not do for another. That is what history is to me. And so you have both both those things. Now, Fugitive Pieces and also Winter Vault have a very layered, very layered and richly textured storyline. And you connect locations and people's experiences of history. Can you talk to me about the importance of making those connections for you as a writer? Well, certainly in the Winter Vault, I was dealing with three historic events. So I was asking very fundamental questions, but the same questions in, in very diff- differing contexts. The first event was the building of the Aswan Dam, a massive dam. We're very used to the idea of these massive dams now and understand the, the hugeness of the consequences, but uh, the Aswan Dam was one of the first, and uh, a dam so large, it was so powerful that it in fact affected the tilting of the axis of the earth. I mean, enormous ecological consequences. Mm. And when that dam was built, it flooded land, a territory as large as England, and displaced thousands upon thousands of people, displaced an entire nation, the Mm. Nubians, and also flooded thousands of archaeological sites. And there was an attempt made to save some of those sites, and the Abu Simbel Temple was the most extraordinary of those sites. And their solution was to, in fact, dismantle it block by block and move it 60 meters higher up the cliff to away from the floodwaters. Uh, what happens when you move a temple? When they re-resurrected it, is it still a temple? So the moving of the Abu Simbel Temple and the flooding of the Aswan Dam, uh, that, that's the first historical Situation. The second was the building of the St. Lawrence Seaway in, in Canada, which also displaced thousands of people, drowned villages, drowned towns, and also forced people to make a tremendously difficult decision, which was the hydro company uh, said, uh, you know, we can move the graves mm. because graveyards would be flooded. And they, they, they gave people a choice. We'll, we'll come in and pay for it and we'll move the graves as if it were something simple. And most people, in fact, decided not to move the dead. And for years, decades afterwards, were, they were afraid to swim in the river for fear that the dead would yeah. rise up into the water. So the building of the seaway yeah. is a second historical context. And the third is the rebuilding of Warsaw after the Second World War. And uh, Warsaw was a city that was uh, ruined not by bombing and not not in the heat of battle uh, so much as by a very systematic dismantling by the Germans. Uh, They numbered buildings, big white painted numbers on the sides of the buildings, and then took the city down piece by piece. The city was, was decimated. And so after the war, the Poles faced a very, very difficult 
decision. What were they to do? Were they to um, leave the ruins where they were as a memorial and build next to the ruins? as they did in Coventry with the cathedral there, were they to clear away the rubble, erase it in a sense, and build a an entirely uh, new city? What were they to do? And in the end, they made a very difficult and heart-breaking decision to, in fact, replicate part of the city, to make an exact duplicate. Every street, every windowsill, every lamppost, every doorframe was completely replicated. And that poses many questions, just like the, the notion of uh, replicating the uh, temple, the Abu Simbel temple. Mm. You have the question of, are you remembering or are you forgetting, in a mm. sense? But it was a completely understandable act of love. Uh, we can't bring back the past. We can't bring back the dead. But there's tremendous desire to, almost in a way, to, to give the dead place. And also, I think, is an act of defiance. So, um, but it, it creates a rather disturbing, in some ways, disturbing memorial. So uh, these three very different situations, very different cultures, different geographically, far distant, um, all of these events uh, held very deep questions in common. And so, yes, as you were saying before, it was very important to me to find connection. I'm not interested in comparison, but in connection. was Canadian poet and novelist Anne Michaels. Anne's latest collection of poetry, Correspondences, is an elegy for the poet's late father, Isaiah Michaels, combining a book-length poem with 26 portraits of famous academics, artists and writers who Anne views as her father's kindred spirits. Correspondences is published by MacSelland and Stewart and retails at about 20 euros. Now, if you've not read Fugitive Pieces or The Winter Vault, well, you're in for quite a treat. Anne writes... Exquisitely. And for those interested in the music lurking in the background, well, it's the superb Australian composer and pianist Sophie Hutchins. I think you'll agree, she certainly hits the tone. Okay, coming up next, we're going to take a little bit of a nature walk to Dublin's Lilliput Press.
News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, I've been getting in some very interesting listener emails over the last couple of weeks. So a big thanks to everyone who has taken the time to email talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's great to get your perspectives on some of the books, ideas and authors we've been covering over the last few months. So keep them coming in. And sure, you might get lucky with one of our feature novelists over the next few weeks. I know I'm going to be highlighting heavyweights such as Philip Roth, Ian Fleming and the terrific Ian McCune. So lots to look forward to there. And I hope we won't be short of opinion either. Now, if you've missed any of the shows over the summer, where well, we've had some very interesting novelists and poets. So if you want to download any of the recent podcasts, all you have to do is go to www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. And it's really easy to actually play a podcast off your trendy smartphone. Really, really handy. Okay, let's get out of the studio and hit the city and delve into the arty, lefty, sublime world of the Lilliput Press, which this month celebrates 30 years in business. The Lilliput Press was founded in 1984 by Anthony Farrell in County Westmead and is known for producing books of immense class, challenge, joy and charm. In 1989, the Lilliput Press moved to Dublin's lively and artistic Arbor Hill, which is north of Dublin city centre, and has today published over 500 titles, encompassing art, architecture, autobiography and memory, biography and history, ecology and environmentalism, essays and literary criticism, philosophy, current affairs and popular culture, fiction and drama and poetry, all broadly focusing on Irish themes. Its noteworthy publications include... The Spinning Heart by Donal Ryan. The Irish Diaries, 1994-2003. Alistair Campbell. Desmond Hogan's The Leaves on Grey and The Yarn Maker. Mike Scott's Adventures of a Waterboy. And Nostos by John Moriarty. Well, last Wednesday, I biked over to the Lilliput Press to meet with the great Anthony Farrell. It's an amazing space, very atmospheric and, of course, jammed with all sorts of unique and interesting books. Let's take a listen. We're uh, surrounded by our books here, over 500 titles arranged alphabetically, so you get a sense of um, what we've done in the last 30 years. And it's terrific. I'm seeing so much colour, so many books with so many curious personalities. Can you tell me firstly about the Lilliput Press? You're 30 years in business this year. You've published some tremendous authors, some very unique stuff, some very left-of-centre stuff, some intellectual, and then obviously the big hitters like The Spinning Heart with Donald Ryan. Uh, indeed. We started out small, as befits our name, in uh, West Meath, from my mother's farmhouse. I always had sort of intellectual ambitions as a country boy. I came back from London in 1980, when I got married, and I began the press in 1984, having worked for Irish publishers, such as James Cashman, Michael O'Brien, etc. And my impetus to begin the press was with a, a manuscript that Seamus Cashman, had, it had come into Seamus, but he wasn't interested in it. He thought it was Anglo-Irish fuddy-duddy stuff, and it was Hubert Butler. It had always been my sort of blueprint to start a press. So I said, do you mind if I take this one on? He said, delighted. So I went down to meet Hubert Butler in Kilkenny and discovered this 84-year-old man who had not been published with this incredible body of essays. Uh, he was a pacifist, intellectual, who, who wrote extensively throughout his life, widely traveled. He'd been in, in Russia in the 20s and 30s. About a third of his writings were about the Balkans. He knew Serbo-Croat, and he went there after the war and uncovered these incredible files on the Serbo-Croatian massacres and uh, documented it thoroughly. And then 
then fell out with the Catholic Church, who were part of the problem, and was ostracized within his own community. So his own story was fascinating, and it, it unreeled through the through the essays that he'd penned, which had appeared in small magazines, like The Bell, with Sean Afuelan and others, the 20th century. So we gathered them, and I edited them, and the first volume was called Escape from the Antill, which Owen Harris launched for me, and his wife Anne Harris gave a full page to in, in uh, Image magazine, and that announced Hubert Butler to the world, Devlin Murphy reviewed it in the Irish Times, Mike Gibbon and others, he took off. Do you think what he wrote about the Catholic Church, do you think that is the reason why he wasn't widely known? Because he tackled some of the uncomfortable issues related to the war, do you think as a result his career didn't take off? Well, he wasn't a career-conscious person. He, he he wrote for himself as much as for posterity. And he was in the liberal Protestant tradition, so he was at a slant to his, his own community. And uh, he, he valued the right of private judgment, the independent mind, all, the, all these values. He had a small farm, so he wasn't dependent on others. Uh, he, he used to talk about salaried professionals. He didn't need that. So he was fortunate. He he was independent, and he had a, a wonderful wife, Peggy Butler, Tyrone Guthrie's sister, to to support him emotionally and, and every other way. So he was the independent-minded man, which every society needs. Can we talk a little bit about Desmond Hogan? Listeners may not be familiar with his work. He's one of Ireland's greatest short story writers, although he was very successful in the 70s and 80s. Today, somewhat forgotten. Well, he's beginning a revival, happily. Desmond in the 70s was, he was rock and roll. He was published with Neil Jordan. His book, The Icon Maker, came out in 1976. We've reissued it, followed by The Leaves on Grey. Faber picked him up and he became the great Irish contemporary voice of his time. I commissioned some stories from him for a magazine I was editing called Adam in London. He shared a house with me in Hampstead when I got married. I remember he had Michael D. Higgins to suffer, (laughs) which was quite something. And Neil came by and all that. And then he he went to ground Desmond in London and living by teaching. And we revived him as as an author with... The Lark's Eggs, which we published in 2005. So he'd had a very fallow period of 10 years. And then we published New and Selected Stories. And last year, we sold all of his backlists to Grasset in Paris. They were Proust's publishers. And Dorky Archive in America have, have reissued him. And he's been published in, in Rome, in Italian. So he's coming back as a force. And he's, he's writing for mag- small magazines all the time. And Anthony, a lot of well-known Irish writers would cite Desmond Hogan as one of their favourite writers. He's influenced loads of different people. But you think it's something to do with trends, that somebody is in fashion and then they're out, and that we sometimes forget about some of the greats. Like, what is it about trends that writers get overlooked? You're either the in-writer or you're not. Well, I think Desmond is a writer's writer. He has a very Baroque, quite difficult style. And he's linguistically inventive and challenging, like Joyce. He's never a popular writer, but he's an exciting writer to read if you're trying to write yourself. And so he's always had that undercurrent of following. He's never been totally out of fashion in that way. People like Colin Bean and others hugely admire this man. And when you were reading when you were younger, how has that changed what you looked at, what you thought was a great book? How has it changed as you have developed your expertise as a publisher? Are you instinctively something touches you in some way and you jump on it? Like, how have things changed? Have you as a reader changed as you've matured or how has it all panned out? Well, I came late to reading. Um, I, I was nurtured on Enid Blyton and Andrew Lang and others. I um, didn't start serious reading until I left school in London. I won as a school prize, Ulysses. And my father lived on a boat in the Mediterranean. I spent a summer there reading Ulysses. And it brought me home because I'd been educated in England for my second education. It made me realize the particularities and the voices in Ulysses made me realize the importance of my own culture. That was an exciting moment. 
Uh, so I grew up with that extraordinary work. At the same time, I was enjoying Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern. I commissioned a graphic edition of Tristram Shandy by um, Martin Rosen, the great English 